1: They are there to listen without judgment or pressure, 24-7, 365 days of the year. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Welcome,
2: folks, to part two of your every step along the way recap of the last two years. Mine and Mike's favourite bits on the podcast so far. Got a great episode for you as well tonight. It's a two hours long and we're going to kick it off straight away with our Women in Football podcast. Since you've been doing it, that there's less
3: litter there or, or more or mm, I think there's less. Yeah, there is less yeah, there is still some new litter every week, but there is yeah. it's getting less, isn't
4: it? Yeah. And there's some other people that are picking.
2: That's good then, because I think that could be your that could be your message getting out to people. They see that you're doing it and think, really? Should I be chucking this on the floor and letting you know, letting a little girl come along and pick it all up for me. Oh, no, I think I can hold on to it and put it in the bin myself. Yeah, oh,
3: yeah. A, lot, a lot of people have started using your bags now, haven't they? So yeah. They ask to put the rubbish in the bags whilst they're walking, which is...
4: Yeah. better. Because, like, when we're near, the like, halfway to the stoke ground and there's no bins around and they have rubbish, they ask us, don't they? Yeah.
2: Oh, that's really good then. That at least that shows that, you know, what you're doing there is having a having a positive effect on people as well. So you should be really proud of yourself for that. Well done. So if you had a message then, what would you what would you have your what would your message would you say to people?
3: What would you always say about the trees?
4: Um, if you throw litter on the ground it'd go into the earth and it would stop the trees from making Making oxygen and and flowers would start making oxygen. And we can't live without oxygen. Yeah,
2: that's a pretty strong message there, isn't it? Yeah, if we can't you know, it's it's not just uh, it's not just how it looks as well. It's harming nature and harming harming everything, you know, probably what we can't see, I say, once it's once it's buried. I think people need to be more aware of what they're doing, don't they? And just, you know, yeah, just have a bit more thought. It's easy to just drop something or chuck it. Just keep hold of it. What what harm is it going to do in your hand for another two or three minutes till you come across a bin?
3: We need to look after where we live, don't we? Yeah.
2: And then yeah, hopefully, one day, you'll be able to finish the match, you'll pick up your bag, and it will be empty when you get to the top of that. <laughs> That's the dream, is it? Thankfully. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> That's the dream.
3: Um, I do, I I do feel, um, safe now and I feel safe for Sophie. When I started going, especially the away, it was quite scary, um, I think at one point we went to a Man City away game and I think I ended up crying because of the, the men behind me because it was just too much. Because I think they got in a, a bit a big argument with my mum and I think just ran away crying as a like, an 11-year-old child. <laughs> but I don't think that had happened now. So uh, when we went down to the Crystal Palace away game for the, the cup game the other week, Sophie didn't come, but I took my young nephew and it's nothing like that anymore it's just about everyone having fun not just the boys going to football yeah it, it seems and especially there's a lot more for kids in the the family area now yeah. than there ever was um so that that's especially for the girls that i think especially that they some girls are new to football. It's still not a big thing to go watch. So, like the face painting in the golf, it's it's unisex uh, yeah. experiences for the kids. It's not all just about FIFA and and football. It it's it's a whole experience now, which I think it's a lot. It, it, it's a lot easier for families. And if women that go uh, with their husband that don't normally go, they're not going to sit in. What used to be the boovin, and be terrified of what's around them because they're not used to the experience, so I think it's a lot better than it was
4: um, hi, um basically like i've I've been a Stoke fan like since I was little, but um, I wasn't really fully into depth of being a football fan until um mid last year when like when all the euros was on. I seem to have got into it really quickly um, and I'd just built up hope and I'd started to like commentate games in a way on my social medias and everyone was like, Oh, you're just a commentator. You should be a commentator. Um, and I've kind of, I put my head into the game of I want to be um, a commentator in media when I'm older. Um, so I see, I've also done sides of, like, coaching sessions in school with the... um, Because Stoke come in on Fridays and they do coaching, um, the community trust guys, um, and I've got myself helping coach them sessions. Um, And I, I get told that I shouldn't do it because I'm a girl and I always get knocked down, but that knocking down also builds me stronger every time in a way you you kind of sit there and accept what they're saying but don't because you shouldn't have to sit and listen to what they're saying as a football fan no one should be able to sit and listen to someone say just because you're the opposite gender and because it's always seemed as a male dominated game for so many years it's now kind of coming into thing of females wanting to be involved but I just I tell it how it is when it comes to them saying it. I'll I'll tell them back that I'd, it's wrong what they're saying, but it makes me stronger and it makes me want to push even harder.
5: Can I ask Rory, okay. me, I mean, where, where where do you think this stems from? Because if I, if I mean I've got a little boy. I say little. He's ten. Um, if my son come out with that, he would get a right earful from me. So so where where's this coming from in, in the current kind of age group? I'm assuming th- parents somehow.
4: I I think it's just because they've they've kind of people have grown up to be that it's a male dominated game and now these past couple of years it seems to that females are, are starting to get into play more and showing that they have got the passion for this game just as much as them guys do and it kind of it does seem to be teenagers who play football and think that they 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 can be good they can be good so can females and everyone just thinks that they are going to be better because they are males and they don't have the and they have the passion whereas we don't but what they don't realize is we hold the passion behind us so much and one one day it's gonna it's gonna be big and it's and it's gonna be strong and i hope to be a part of that when i'm older the lads in my school don't seem to accept it but the staff will, but the students won't because they just think that we, we're just females who belong in the kitchen. For example, um, on International Women's Day, I had food tech and we were talking about football and they said, well, well, we're cooking now. So it's, it's where you belong. You belong in the kitchen. And I got really I got high rates about it. I told them, I was like, just because we're female doesn't mean we have to be in the kitchen or be where a female should be when. They've got all these sports they can do, like basketball, football, anything they can do if they put their mind to it. Uh, You
6: have to appreciate that being men on this podcast, you've always been looked upon as um, the most important sex. And it's changing slowly but women, as you've actually said yourself, have as much right to go and appreciate a game of football as men. And the problem is when men compare women with men, because after the age of puberty, there's no way that women can compete with men at most sports because of the difference in muscular strength, etc. So if you if you can look beyond that... Um, and look at the technical ability of some of the women. It makes me laugh when we all go to football, and, and, and as Rory said, we all have we all have players that we like. But the vast majority of us who criticise people and say, "Oh, they're rubbish, waste of time, get rid," we couldn't do an eighth of what those people do with the football. And it's the same. It's the same with uh, lads and, and men talking about women footballers. The top class women footballers have as much skill as some of the people. Not saying it's the top men, but some of the people that criticise the top women footballers, the top women footballers would make them look silly, but they they, they don't have the ability to, to look at somebody's technical side of the game. They just look at the power and the strength of people and think that they can beat them on that alone. But I, I've always wanted to see um, some of these people that say how good they are, uh, who haven't made it as professionals, up against some of the better women, and that would be the acid test. But there's no doubt in my mind that um, women's sport has taken a great leap forward during the COVID outbreak because at that time people were stuck at home. They'd watch any sport. They'd watch if they were sporty. They'd watch any sport on the telly. Any sport that they could get anywhere. And women's sport made a breakthrough at that time because there were there was more opportunities for people to watch it. Um, and the other thing, of course, is if you're looking at going into the media, as, as these two ladies have said tonight, these two women have said, then you've now got role models. When I was involved in in, in my sport, there were there were no professional role models. I started professional squash, and now it's much easier for people because. There's a saying: if you if you can see it, you can be it. And now there are people that made the breakthrough, like Kelly Cates uh, as a broadcaster. You look at Emma Hayes as a manager. So I think it's a gr- really exciting time for for younger females who want to get into sports media or want to get into playing football. And uh, that should go for any sports. Just because you're female, it doesn't mean that you have any lesser right to to play a sport that. You... Well, when I started going, I was I was very young. I mean, I went because my mum and dad couldn't get a babysitter and. Um, <laughs> Sadly, I also went to the Vale on occasions because my dad was one of these blokes that went to Stoke one week and Vale the next because you didn't go to many away games then. And I never forgave him for it, in all honesty. But uh, if we're being serious, um, as I got older, people sort of humour you. And... um, When I was with my parents, it wasn't a problem because I think my mum would have uh, given as good as she got because my mum was quite a fierce Stoke fan too. But as you get older and you go with your mates, you are looked upon as a bit of a novelty and then it changes and then if you don't like the player that they like, then they have a go at you and say, well, you don't know what you're talking about, etc., which the other two girls on this call will have probably had themselves. It's quite frustrating. But you have to appreciate that... um, Not everybody looks at life the same as you do because, again, why why do men have to look at... In the past, men have not had to bother about women going to football because there's not been many of them there. Now it's getting more and more regular, and the more people go, I think it will change because it will just become a fact of life that women like football and women go to football, and eventually some of the ignorant people who go to football now who don't think women have a place at football will think, mm, maybe they've got a point with what they're saying, and it will change because everything changes uh, if, if things... If you keep seeing the same things, everything changes eventually, and it be- there becomes an acceptance. I mean, you were talking about um, people can listen to your or speak on your podcast, whether they're black, white, or whatever. There was a time when you didn't see many black people in Stoke, and it, everybody was a little bit shocked. Now most people have black friends in Stoke-on-Trent. So if you if you look if you t- if you take that to another extent, the more women females that go to football the more it'll become normal and it will get normalized and then people like you uh, won't have to have these podcasts to try and educate people who don't understand that women have a right to to do as much as men you know i did not fm and i was also on signal with jonty on saturday matches and jonty's a very accomplished broadcaster in answer to your question about radio stoke i was very flattered when they they contacted me and and asked me if I would do some work with them. And um, I think it was quite brave of Radio Stoke uh, to to ask me because obviously nobody, no female had done it for Radio Stoke before and I just hope I'm the first of loads of women um, that that get on and, and do stuff. I have been shocked at some of the personal messages I've received from... Uh, people who clearly know much more about football than me from, from what they tell me in personal messages, you know, like stay in the kitchen or, or another room of the house, what do you know about football, etc. etc. But if you're going to allow these people to uh, hurt you, then ladies are not going to, females are not going to advance. Um, so you just Brush it off. You get on with it. And and Laura Woods, as was mentioned, she's got a brilliant job now. She's working hard, but even she um, gets the trolls abusing her now. I was at a women in football day at Wembley and some of the stories that she told and one or two other high profile people like Alex Scott told. um, If you if you look at the comments, somebody like myself gets and magnify them a thousand times. I'm afraid there's a lot of trolls out there that, um, that think women are fair game. They probably think men are fair game too, but it's particularly unpleasant. Uh, but, you know, like everybody else on this call that's female, I'm, I'm not going to let it beat me. It's normally the people that are Bob the Builder or K-E-S-75-G, they never use their own names and um, they think it's highly amusing to do what they do. My advice to to anybody else on this call is, uh, unless it's a complete lie about you, don't even respond because they get off on on the responses that you give them. I'll give you an example. Today I put out a tweet about... um, I just copied the link of the financial report for Stoke and put... um, something similar to you can't question the commitment of the owners no doubt somebody will or some will and within I would say 30 seconds because I timed it um, I was getting abuse and um, people tend to twist what you say to suit their narrative but you just have to get on with it and and we all will get on with it and eventually it will stop but you have to appreciate that for, um, for some people it's a very serious and damaging thing and that's why social media can be a great place but it can also be an awful place if, if somebody keeps we all know or have read of instances where people take their own lives because of things that are said to them on social media and I believe that if everybody had to have their own name and proof of where they lived 95% possibly more percent of the ignorance displayed in tweets on Facebook on all other forms of social media would stop
7: yeah I'm I'm Charlotte and I'm a Rochdale fan and um, sorry I'm a Rochdale fan and um it first started on my part it was it was just from me and my friend Isabel we actually had plans we'd We'd been kind of thinking about doing it for a while, and it was to do our own podcast. But we were always, we were always unsure, unsure of the backlash we were going to get with us being females. So Rochdale then actually partnered up with the campaign, her game too. So since obviously that um, we started our podcast, that took off really well. Um, we ended up getting contacted by our our program editor so we've now got our own feature in the match day programme we have our own blog and from that and just from us hearing about the um, campaign her game too we kind of supported the campaign and from then obviously um I've been named club ambassador for Rochdale so I actually work with the club if there is any problems Um, to do with sex abuse, if obviously from away fans, from our own fans, if someone's feeling uncomfortable to try and help improve the matchday experience, whether that be obviously from from fans, from people who work in the club, whether it be physios, whether it be someone who works behind the bar, whether it be someone in the kitchen, um, the kiosk, sorry. So that's kind of my role with Rochdale, but the campaign itself it's actually it was founded in May last year on FA Cup final day and it was a video of the 12 girls and it was then basically putting up a piece of paper with all the insults and all the nasty comments that they have had aimed at them before and the video just went absolutely viral I think I think within a th- couple of hours it had actually reached a million followers and it was just it was just insane and to say obviously it was FA Cup final day as well that was pretty that was pretty epic and something special but the girls didn't realize how many fans actually from other teams sympathize with them and how how like how it is quite it is quite a common thing and, um, yeah, so basically from there, it started with the girls starting this campaign and then, obviously, it just went bigger and bigger. We've obviously got teams from all different leagues um, supporting the campaign from Premier League right down to um, League Two, um, the conference, grassroots teams. We've actually... Um, there's actually a Her Game 2 campaign now in the USA, which is just mega. Um, some girls did the same thing with a video and yeah it's just it's just becoming bigger and bigger and it's it sounds awful because you shouldn't have to have these campaigns like the um kick out racism you shouldn't have to have these campaigns but I think I think they are needed to educate people I'm I'm 30 now, and I was going with my dad since being four years old. I'll be honest, when I was four, I wasn't really interested. It was just a wave to him, Desmond the Dragon, our mascot, and for a pie because they're really good. <laughs> but um, I've been a season ticket holder since I was six, and I'm 30 now, and I've never at an actual game, I've never received any abuse or ever felt like. I was singled out, ever been victimized because I'm a woman. But it's all stemmed from social media. And there's there's obviously been times like similar to the other females in the chat now where it's been like get to the get back to the kitchen and your opinion's not valid. But um it's also been the case as well with me in particular, because I do have a large following on social media and it is because obviously I'm a football fan and because of my podcast so I am very lucky but I have that platform and I want to use it in a right way to try and inspire women to have a voice and that's one of the reasons I'm doing a podcast but at the same time you do get backlash and it actually can get quite personal as well like the other day, I just put on, it was a video, um, just a quick, like, a TikTok kind of video, and it was actually um advertising her game too, and the merchandise, and I had people comment on the way I look, and <laughs> it's just, it can get really nasty, and as much as I have grown a thick skin now, and some of the comments don't get to me when someone personally like attacks your appearance and the way you look that's really nasty so yeah it can it can get a bit it can get a bit
5: brutal sometimes your keyboard i mean if they bring in that legislation of having to verify your account i really genuinely do think we'll see that disappear overnight which will i think will then progress the argument i'm not gonna say it will never happen because unfortunately some people are just idiots but you know i think it will cut it out dramatically and i think that is then the way forward both for racism and uh, again the, the female sport i think that will that will that will change very very quickly because they can no longer get away with it So hopefully it comes in. Actually, actually Dan, just obviously we've heard from the also the ladies, but have you personally heard any of these comments yourself at Stoke? I can't say that I have. So I'm just trying to figure out: is this a a social media issue, or or what?
2: Yeah, I I, obviously I've got four daughters. if the, the eldest I took to football, she wasn't interested. Fair enough. Uh, I do actually go with my eight year old and my four year old. Um, so the middle two, they they go. To, they've got season tickets with me in the family stand. And I haven't, so obviously I haven't heard of them. They're only children. I doubt they're going to get anything because they are children. But yeah, it's not something I've really heard um, as such. No, I think. But again, like I say, it's probably, they're, they're not going to be screaming it out either, are they? It's going to be the snidey little quiet... If they're going to say yeah. it to somebody while they're there, it'll be like the quiet comments that only they can sort of hear that, you know, would would upset somebody but doesn't put them out there in front of everybody so everybody knows what they've said. Yeah. Which sort of says... It sort of says what kind of person they are. they They, they, sort of, they must know... To do that, you know, you're doing something wrong because you don't want everyone to hear what you're saying.
7: Yeah, of course. And it's like, it's like even, it's not even just a nasty comments, it's like even the chants that a lot of fans do. And especially when there's like a female physiotherapist, when they're coming on the pitch to do the job and they're getting male fans screaming and singing chants at them, and the woman's just come on to do a job. And I just find. I just find things like that and I know obviously it's been in the game obviously even when I was younger I'd say to my dad what are they singing like I had no idea kind of thing and I just think I just think even things like that the poor woman's coming on the pitch to do a job and she's being like she's been made to feel uncomfortable. I think, yeah, I think it does need to be normalised and people do need to... Obviously, it's hard for some people because, you know, a lot of people can be stuck in the ways and that goes for racism and stuff, like some of your other generation. But I think we just need to get out of the habit now of it just being a man's game and women should... Their opinions should matter and we are valid. And it's like me, like, now, obviously, I went with my dad and obviously now I take I've got a little boy and I take him to football with me and I want him to think do you know what it is normal to go with my mum to football (laughs) and stuff like that I just want it to get out of the habit that it should it should be like this typical man's game because it's not um, as long as you're enjoying it as long as obviously you're supporting your team and you're obviously I say enjoying it. I'm a Rochdale fan, so that very rarely happens, to be honest. (laughs) But um, yeah, as long as like you're doing what you're doing and you get enjoyment out of it, you should be able to, and you should be able to go to football without people grunting and turning the nose at
6: you because you're a female.
5: I wouldn't mind, Charlotte. We don't actually enjoy Stoke.
6: You know, I've got to be um, honest that if we're talking about Stoke, I'm a female chair of, of the supporters council now. I was. Everybody that is on the on the council is voted on by the fans. So um, that that means that obviously some people recognise female fans, and then the council pick whoever they want to be chair. And I've been very proud to be chair. And Stoke also have a really good track record of employing females in the football club. So I I, I think Stoke are pretty forward thinking as a club. But in terms of of, of this podcast, I, I everybody. Should realise that sport should be inclusive, and football will be inclusive, and no one will stop ladies playing football or women having football teams, because we live in a modern world in which women should be integrated, and there'll be enough leaders, uh, like the other people on these phone calls on the podcast tonight, and leaders playing sport, that will make it inclusive in the future. And it's been a great pleasure to to talk to these other people, and uh, hopefully we'll help to push the game forward.
8: For any Stoke fan, the, the dream has to be scoring at the bet. Um, so, yeah, we did that a couple of times. And I didn't score many goals in my career, but the goals I did score did tend to be on, on the bet 365. And they are special moments. don't think you ever kind of forget them kind of days. They, kind of, they, they mean a little bit more and they, they do stay with you. They do. Particularly as a Stoke fan, I think that is every Stoke fan's dream. I think it has to be.
2: Yeah, I mean, like I say, you've had a lot of lot of things there that, um, that I've just mentioned. I mean, how would you rank them? What would you say you know was your, the top moment for you? Would, would it have been like you know winning the treble, give it, having the armband for the first time, scoring that, scoring those goals at the bet three six five?
8: I think I would have to put the treble at the top of that list. Um, the the reason for that was for me personally, probably wearing the armband was probably the most significant moment. Just because to captain my hometown and as a supporter was was unbelievable. The time that I had as captain, it was such a privilege. I had such a good group of girls that we were working with at the time as well. And we were lucky enough to go on to win the treble. The reason the treble probably topples that for me is because that wasn't just about me. It was about us as a group and, and us as a club. And the change that that treble winning season made to us as a group of players and staff and, and as a women's team was unbelievable. That really put us on the map. A lot of people started to recognise us. Um, so for, for the reason that if I was being selfish, it would be the armband. But I think as a collective group, I would have to say the treble winning season is was the most significant season for me. Um, it just changed the way that women's football was viewed in the county and the city. And we hadn't so much recognition from that point onwards. Obviously scoring at the best, a little bit of a selfish one. Again, I did enjoy it. um, But that was very much a personal moment, I think. Um, It was part of a a big season for us, which I'll always remember and enjoy. But I think I have to always put to to the top of the list the times that we we were successful as a group and as a team.
4: Very,
2: very good, very modest there, uh, very modest, putting the, the <laughs> team first. <laughs> um, and obviously like now you've saw you've moved into a new role now, you know reserve team coach.
8: So um yeah, so Before COVID, I had a phone call just to say, listen, um, I'd got my coaching badges, but I'd I'd retired due to injury. But I had a phone call saying, listen, would you mind just doing a bit of a favour? Just joining the coaching staff um, on more of a casual basis. And I said, you know what, I think I'm ready to get back involved. Uh, Retiring football was huge for me as a player. It dictated my life for 15, 20 years. Personal life, professional life, nothing really mattered. Football came first. So when I retired, it was... It was a real roller coaster for the first six to 12 months, but I did feel the time was right before COVID to get back involved. The opportunity came and I took it, and I was lucky enough to work with a really young group of, of girls in the reserve team, and I enjoyed that time. We were successful during that time, and... Um, I learnt a lot. I worked with a great coach, Tom Pond. He was he was fantastic to work with. And then COVID really hit, um, which put an end to the season, put the end to training and changed football a little bit for me. But it gave me time to think. It gave me time to actually go away and, and understand exactly where I wanted to be in football and what I wanted to do. And during that time away um, from the grass with the, the squad, I decided that I really wanted to progress as a coach. Um, So I sat down with Chloe, our our technical director, and I said, listen, you know, I want to progress. I want to continue my journey and and do my coaching badges. Um, So we sat down, we had a conversation. She was really supportive. The club were really supportive. And we decided that in the summer, last summer, that I would join her with the first team squad. Um, During the 12, well, 9 to 12 months that I've been with them, we've had so many changes, so... Chloe was technical director and we got a head coach in place. Um, due to work commitments, head coach then resigned from her role. Um, Chloe took over um, and we had a good six months together where I learned so much from her and the staff that I work with. Um, that was really valuable time. And then recently, obviously, close resigned from her post as technical director. Um, so I'm currently working with the first team, which which I didn't anticipate nine months ago, but which I'm relishing and enjoying. So a bit of a topsy-turvy season um, and a real mixed start to coaching career. But something I'm enjoying, it's it's difficult at times, it poses challenges I've never faced before, but I think I've probably learnt more about myself in the last nine months than I probably have done in the last nine years. It's really asked questions of me as a person. So I'm enjoying it um, and I've got no doubt there's more challenges to come, but as they come, we'll, we'll face them and we'll tackle them and we'll see where it leaves us. Our biggest platform is Stoke City Football Club and, and the more they back us, the more visibility and they give us to their audience, the more support that we will get. Um, I don't think there is a better platform either than the Football Club. Everybody that that supports Stoke City that I've ever spoke to champions the women's side, if they know about it. And I think you're right in what you say that there's there's a large percentage of supporters that just haven't got visibility on how we operate as a women's team. You know, where do we play our home fixtures? Where are we in the league standing? How successful are we as a football club? Um, And if if supporters don't know and don't have, have that coverage from the club then we need to make that happen. Um, we need to make sure that, that we are on those platforms that are visible to fans and and give ourselves the best chance to be supported by supporters of Stoke City Football Club. Um, I've been a fan of Stoke City from, from a small child. Um, I wouldn't want to support anybody else and I wouldn't want anybody else to support our women's team either. I think as, as a set of fans, I feel privileged to be part of that group and be part of Stoke City Football Club. And I'd be absolutely honoured if those fans would love to, to follow us and support us as well. But you guys, you're right so in what you sure. say, that un, until they're aware of of who we are and what we're about and you know where we play our home games and, and who the players are and how successful we are, it's very difficult for, for fans to engage with players, staff in the football club. Yes, yeah, so I'd had a couple of big injuries, I'd had a couple of operations, and I was still playing. Um, but as a female footballer, we're not contracted or paid to play. So I came to a crossroad where there was a couple of things I had to consider. The first one was my long-term health. Like I could have continued playing, I could have continued having operations, but I also had to consider that every time I had an operation or I was injured or I, I couldn't walk or I was on crutches. I wasn't in work. And I've also got a career that I had to balance because football, as much as I loved it, wasn't it wasn't a paying career. I earned yeah. no money from playing. So, as much as I loved it and I wanted to give up if I didn't have to, I also had to consider I've got a career and I, I need to pursue that. And and those kind of health and career had to come first. I come to a crossroad where I needed more surgical work, and I was approaching thirty. And the surgeon was saying, even if I operate, the chances of you playing for a succession of years is probably quite slim. Anyway, you're probably going to do more damage than you are good. So I came to that point where. I had to make a, a really tough decision, but at that point I did know it was right. I'd have never yeah. walked away from football. If I'd have got any doubts at all, I would have never walked away. But I think I knew time was up. I was I was tired of, of perhaps being in the physio room a little bit. I was tired of being injured. I was tired of of not being in work consistently. Um and those kind of those kind of stresses within your life, they, they do take its time. So I got to the point where I did prioritise career and health. Um, and looking back now, it was the right decision in the right time. I think if I had continued to play, I probably wouldn't have been as successful as, as I had been previously. Um, and I'd probably be disappointed ending my career that way, whereas actually went out on a high. We had a real succession of promotion-winning seasons, cup-winning seasons, um, and... Yeah. So I was happy to go out when I did. Um, and I think you do know, as an individual, you do know you get to that point where you're happy and you're comfortable with your decision. And although it was tough and it took me a while to accept, um, I'm happy I made it when I did and, and chose the career path that I did. Before we had the, the treble winning season, we hadn't had it all our own way. Um, we'd got a really good group of players. We'd would we'd been together for a while, a couple of seasons, but we hadn't had our own way. It's quite a competitive league. And... Um, But I think when we entered that season, there was something different. There was something different about... There was nothing different in terms of personnel and the group of players that we got, but there was a different feel. We were confident, we were organised, we were very disciplined as a group. And those things, combined with the quality we got in the squad, it just seemed to fit together really well. Um, We really did click that season I've got no doubt If I look back now in some detail that we also had a little bit of luck on the way. Um, But we definitely clicked. We worked hard. We trained three times a week, which is something not many teams when I've worn a Stoke shirt have done. But we were all committed. We trained on a Friday night. So bearing in mind, if the girls were training on a Friday night, you can't go out on a Saturday because it's game day Sunday. You've lost your weekend every weekend for nine months. For in essence, what was an it was a hobby, we didn't get paid to play. Um, so there was no financial gain, we weren't contracted in that fashion. So I think in hindsight, we got our reward for our commitment and discipline and, and the quality we got within this squad. But there was there was a different feel that season, there's no doubt about it. We'd still got the same group that we'd had previous seasons, but something just did Feel a little bit different it clicked um and it, it really did work and that was the foundation for the success that went on to follow for the next almost decade yeah i'd, I'd, I'd completely mirror your comments there um we had an like a, an incident a few months ago where there was a, a, a national cup final that was held two o'clock on a Sunday afternoon. Now all women's football kicks off at two o'clock on a Sunday afternoon, which pretty much ruled out any female involved in competitive football, either watching or attending the FA Cup final. Um, So we just need to be a little bit smarter and work with the likes of Sky Sports, work better with the FA to to be able to attract those kind of crowds. Um, I've got no doubt that we could, you know, the latest England friendlies there was crowds of thirty and forty thousand there. They have a really good following now, but I think a good percentage of them. Although there are there are the supporters that are you know male and predominantly follow the male game. A large percentage of those supporters will either be a footballer, coaching football, have a daughter that plays football, have previously played or coached football. So to have a cup final at two o'clock on a Sunday when everybody's already got their hands full and tied up with their own fixture um that kind of that kind of summarizes where we're at we need to be a little bit more more clever avoid obviously peak time for men's football avoid peak time for women's football and let's just see if we can get those spectators stacked up get more people involved and watching whether it's at home on the settee or whether it's live at the game but just make it more achievable for people to get there and, and watch it and 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 to be a spectator. At times, it's been difficult to watch women's football, like you said. Sometimes I struggle with the days and times that, that it's broadcast because, as a coach, I've got commitments that I have to, to meet with Stoke. So that comes first, and the girls come first. So then watching it comes second, which is disappointing because I'd love to watch more of the women's football. To be fair, I do watch a lot on catch-up. Um, <laughs> but not everybody has that luxury or has the time to do that either, Um so yeah, let's. I think as as a country, we can we can broadcast better. We can pick better um, kick off times and kick off days, and just avoid the peak times for men's and women's football just to attract better spectator figures.
2: A great insight there from women with various roles uh, in football there. That- And, yeah, I mean, moving on now, we're going to go to Eric Skeels, who played more games for Stoke than any other player. Massive 597 appearances. Um, So, yeah,
9: enjoy. When I went for the trial to uh, Birmingham, the manager was an ex-Stoke City manager. And uh, I didn't actually see him, but I played in the 18. team I had a couple of games, and they were, they, were, they were all right with me and everything like that. But it was always that he was come up on the Saturday morning by train, or back by train, and uh, I didn't see... The manager or anything like that because it's only like the 18th there but then you got the sack because it was near the season end of course when you got the sack everything sort of was that was it you know free agent again and then went back playing local football and the scout who, who, who found me in the first place he came to me again and asked me would I like to go and play at Stoke City, have a trial there, and I said, well, where's Stoke City, because I, from where I was situated in Athens, I hadn't been about any or travelled anything, like, you know, with a poor upbringing and everything, and then he described it all, so I then went to Stoke City, had a trial with them. At the back of the Old Stoke ground, and he was playing for? we playing West Brom, and uh, Jeff Asel was playing. I mean, I didn't know him at the time, but it was after the game. Realised someone told me who he was, and then of course Tony Waddington was there. And what do you call it? The tailor of he didn't go to many of the games, or what I saw anyway. But uh, Tony Waddington came to me and he said, "Look, uh, we'd like you to call and have another." Few games with a so you go on in like, the night day team things like that. And of course, all like, well, I just said yes, of course we will. we said, look, we'll pay the expenses of, you know, you train fairly and there every weekend. So that's what I did. And then uh, went and played a few games for him. And then Tony Woodington said to me after one game we played in played at Wolverhampton we had on a Saturday Saturday afternoon, morning afternoon. And after the game and I, I think we lost one nil after the game he pulled me to one side and then he said, look, uh, we'd like to sign you. Of course, I mean, I was lost for words, to be honest. <laughs> but I said, that sounds fine. And listen, money was not mentioned, wages or anything like that. It was just a factor of saying, yes, I'd love to play for you. And of course, and that's how it developed.
5: The days and when it uh, was all about the football and not about the money, uh, I guess, Eric.
9: Because it was still uh, £20 a week was the general wage then. One, for the and so forth. I think about maybe six months after, then it went free agent. All that sort of thing. Anyway, they called me in and they went down, and that's when I. Tony Waddington was there at the ground at the and went into the office and there was the manager himself. And he turned around and said, look, we'd like to sign for us, 12-month contract, and we'll pay you £10 a week. £4 for the win, £2 for the draw in the, in the, in the, in the big side and all that. And all I was pleased was I wanted to sign, you know what I mean? I was over the moon. And I was lost for words to be honest. Uh, quite pleasant women, everything, because he watched me play a few times in the eighteen and so forth, and he just asked me what I uh, what he wanted me to, you know, of me and things. And I was quite pleased to say. And he just turned around and I said, look, you sign for us, right. You'll be in the digs, and we'll sort everything out that way. And you go home every weekend after the game and come back on the Monday, and just general things like that. And, of course, I was actually signed. That was basically it. And then, of course, when I signed, I was over the moon. Uh, and then when I got back home, uh, my father said, how have you gone on? And he said, well, I can pack my job in at the mill, so I'm uh, I'm going to try and throw football for some City." And he was over the moon about it as well. But the first thing he said, was so how much are you getting? You know what I mean? I said, ten pound a week. So uh, that's how it went, you know what I mean? And of course, then I went and signed for Stoke and, and I travelled a little bit there and back until I found Dix, which was near to the ground, which they sort of told me where to go and I'd been to one or two places. But there was another player that was uh, coming, a lad named Ronnie Wilson. He was come from Scotland. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was—he wasn't with me, like. But he—he he was after digs. But he went up further to Longton area, and I sort of went just by the ground. The lady there and her husband, and got a son. So I was in digs there, and that was it. It was three pounds fifty a week, you know, for me digs. Uh, My train fare or whatever that was, and the bus fare from the Manchester to Eccles. And obviously, ten pound didn't go very far then. You know what I mean? But by the time I got home, he paid me tax and everything. My old man was at the door saying, How much have you got any light? Like? You know?" And I said, "Well, I've got around about five pounds." He says, "Oh, well, I'll about for that then, because you won't spend all that, will you?" I always remember that no but it wasn't the money that I was thinking of it was the fact that I was going to be a professional footballer that was the that was the reward for me and then and of course you're just sort of jogging around the pitch loosening off uh, and then they have you sprint the whole length of the pitch jog around the bottom end sprint the other way and you'd be doing that for a while and backwards and forwards someone overtaking you and this and that and then you would set you on the, the pitch behind the sub-ground and then you'd practice the football and play five a side game, and every it was always on a, a Thursday that they had a practice game ready for the Saturday game. Um, and we'd play against the first some first team players and that's how it went. Until so, obviously that went on for quite a long while with me because I was playing in the eighteen. But I did meet all the uh, the so called stars and everything, you know what I mean? And the dressing room they introduced themselves and very pleasant and welcome to Stoke sort of thing and take you down to the the local cafe in the town for a, a coffee after the football had finished and general jits you know, learn about Stoke City and Stoke friends at west ham yes it was uh, it all felt like a very tight pitch at west ham in them days to me it was anyway you know it seems to be a buffy anyway anyway Tony uh, 21 just says mark the uh my best <laughs> big lad i mean like he must have been six foot and you know if I stood next year and you wouldn't see me he was um, just strong and big but 21 just said just uh, keep him quiet Anyway, uh, the game went on and we happened to we it and come out. And he, he didn't really say a lot to me because he never did, like, you know. Uh, but Terry Conway said, "But you're see You haven't even got your shorts dirty or anything like that. And he's not had a kick. You know, do things like that, you know. So that's the sort of thing I had to do. I mean, I enjoyed doing it anyway. But that's how it went. And we, uh, we managed to beat them. So it was a good game. A good uh, Good, uh, good game for me as well. And then,
2: obviously, when we got to that final, that we played Chelsea, and uh, Alan Hudson was on the
9: opposite side, once in that game. But soon to become a teammate, and I believe a very good friend of yours. Yes, yeah, he was, yeah, and is. When I see him. Occasionally he comes down to Stoke And I have a word with him You know uh, All the game sort of thing But he always says to me Where well, are you going for a drink after? I said look I'm not going anywhere I'm going home It's only very rare now I see him To be honest But he was he was fabulous playing He really was Because he was always He was always looking for the ball You know He used to say to me When he came to Stoke Excuse He said listen When you get the ball Just look for me And I'll be there around you looking for it anyway And so he made that He made the game easier for me look like at saying that, you know, where sometimes you see people running away from you and you've got to try and pass the ball him. He was wanting it straight away, like you know, and he could beat a man easy. He was he was a really good person in London, yes. Played in London, we stayed at Russell Hotel, we always did went to London. And after the game, once we've won somewhere, I forget what it was now, but as long as you win, you can enjoy yourself. So instead of us going back on the coach to, to the hotel, we just, oh he says, come on, we'll go have a wander. And Jeff Sammons was with us as well. So the three of us, we went and got in a taxi, went to the area that, that he generated from and what have you, and of course into the bars, having a good time and a few drinks. And then, uh, right, where should we go from here? i'm looking at my watch thinking what time it was because it was a night match he says i'll tell you where we'll go we'll go to this club and it was the club that the uh craze they used to go there they tell me anyway when we went in we got wherever it was we got in and we had to go uh, downstairs and they were down before me, obviously, and then sat there and I just looked at him like, you know, and he gave me a, a dirty look, that like, sort of thing. And I just I carried on and went in and Odie said to me, you know, that is there. I said, I don't know anybody around here. Do I know not know said That's crazy. Oh. Well, I didn't sort of uh, shake or anything like that. I just didn't go near him again. <laughs> yeah. No, but we had a good time. But I tell you what, I went home before them. They were still in and I went home. Back to the old town, got a taxi. I don't know what time they got in. But uh, Tony Waddington, uh, we'd beat whoever it was we were playing against. Of course, going back on the train, we all used to have s- sitting our own sort of seats and everything, and a table with, with me and so forth, and we'd be playing cards and chit-chatting. And then Tony Waddington came up and he went, you got a night last time, did you? Skillsy? I said, how do you mean? I said it was with these two. He said, "Well, I'm just telling you. You had a good night, did you?" I said, "Yeah, it was all right." He said, "What? Uh, what time did you get in?" I said, "Well, you know, right I did. You saw me later on, didn't you?" I didn't turn around and say the other two hadn't come in. I said, "They're sort of still strolling around outside, but they were still in the club <laughs> you know." And you, when you think back on things, and you think, "Oh, what could have, what could have happened, and what didn't happen," and you, you think about it, and I, and I think about seventy-one cup when we, when I, I didn't get getting the team, you know, and Tony and said I would be playing and then he didn't play me, you know what I mean? He, and then he got in the sub. Uh, that sort of, uh, that didn't go well down with me at all. Because uh, I've always been, all right, like you say, I've always been playing at stuff, so I've always been very happy. But obviously when you don't get what you like to do, you feel a bit distressed about it all. So I wasn't very happy when... Uh, when you were playing at Wembley and I was in the squad and everything, and then one minute I'm going to be at least sub, and then on the last minute you turn around and you give it to John Mahoney. Uh, And I couldn't say much about it anyway after that it was uh, there was no real friendship with us then after that me and Tony Waddington anyway but, that was, that's, but that's football you know what I mean that could happen yeah. to anybody you thought of uh, obviously but going back a few years used to get into the Waddington suite and this and that you know complimentary tickets and so forth and chit-chat and so forth things like that but now as the years have gone on we seem to be uh, I know we're getting old like at my age now but uh, you move you on, so you don't really invite us down there. And they give me a complimentary ticket, it's like you know, for each own game. But you don't get asked up into the Wellington suite or here or there anymore. And I'm wondering why they've moved us around the other side. There's no restaurant down there, so it's they've got a little bar now. We're just trying to get it turned into a sort of restaurant. So maybe they've put us around there to bring more people in. That could be the, the reason why. I mean, that's it. I don't speak to any of the directors anymore. Because when, when I was playing, even when I was in the first team, like uh, when nothing against it, when say Dennis Schuyler came or Eddie Clamp or you know whoever from another team, they come and obviously get a good wage because I soon it again. we told I'd get my wages would be like, a, just using a figure, I started on £10 a week and then the next season it might have been 20 and then 30 But I think the most I ever got, was like maybe £120 a week, which is like putting in top of my thing, but then that's when I got £120 and made that up was like bonus money, Yeah, the bonus for, or to get to the halfway line, extra bonus when you got to sixth position, then getting one fifth, fourth and 120 quid, say right, when I was when we were playing top of the week. So it sounds a lot of money, like that, but when you think about now
2: <laughs> I mean so that £120 I mean w- would that have been the equivalent as say um, you know a doctor or something or are you, you well below those kind of, at the time
9: it was a lot more than the average wage, like you know for us you know as regards to being a bit player or even you know whatever it was in them days it was good money like but when you're sort of starting off and you know you're getting that kind of money then you've got a me a really young lady, you get married, you, you've got to buy a house, mortgages, it's more expensive and, yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, and then you, you know, you get, your family gets bigger and more money, like you know, could get spent. So it's not as if you can sort of save enough to say, oh, I can retire when I've finished. You've got to get into someone else and keep going. Whereas now in football, the money they you get by the time they retire. We haven't got to think about, um, you know, how of us
2: survive. We've got the money. Ah, oh, brilliant stuff. Yeah, and now we're going to move on to a person who was featured in part one, actually, and it's Price of Football uh, podcast own Kieran Maguire. So he returned. It was actually a hat-trick appearance on the pod, and it was to discuss the government's white paper and the influence it could have
10: ultimately it stems from uh, a guy called stuart dale selling berry football club to another guy called steve Steve dale for one pound and steve dale then almost instantly stopped playing suppliers didn't pay the tax very often at times didn't play pay the players so that so the, the players ended up with with cold showers because the electricity got cut off and he, he saw uh, Berry Football Club as an opportunity to make money. And uh, Berry Football Club um, had, had, were victims of, of poor governance by the EFL, because there was nothing to stop uh, Steve Dale. Buying the club, um, he was supposed to show a business plan, and he just said, "Turned to the, around to the EFL and said, um, I, I, own the, I own the shares in the club. But I, I can't be bothered giving you a business plan, and I'm not going to guarantee I'm going to pay anybody.' And, and they were effectively having to deal with a fait accompli, and, and they've had years to get the governance of the game right. And I know the word governance is, is of no interest to people on a day to day basis. You know, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not jumpers for goalposts. It's, it's not." dreaming of scoring the winning goal in the last minute against your most hated rivals from 30 yards like we all still have, regardless of our ages. Um, But Berry Berry Football Club were then... People said they went bust. They they sort of went bust, but people also forget they were expelled by the EFL. And why were they expelled from the EFL? It was because other clubs thought, well, if we kick Berry out, instead of two clubs being relegated from League two to the conference it'll only be one so that's going to so if we vote for Barry to go out of the league that halves our chance of being kicked out of the EFL ourselves through relegation so clubs have started acting in, in, in pure self-interest um, and, and they, they got kicked out and the national League wouldn't accept them and so on um, so the, the government as a response to that um commissioned tracy crouch to set up a fan-led review and i think people felt at the time oh this this is just a bit of grandstanding by the government mm. um you know tr- trying to take an interest or pretending to take an interest in football but what people didn't realize is that tracy crouch is football mad and she Conducted this uh, this inquiry into the game, listened to hundreds and hundreds of fans and fan groups, and I hold my hand up. I, I was I was asked to to speak to it as well, um, and then a a paper was produced on, on the back of those interviews, which made recommendations, um, including to have an independent regulator of the game, uh, to have a beefed up owners and directors test, to to look at the distribution of money in the game, um, to try to protect the industry. You know, what, if, you th- if you think about yourselves as, as Stoke fans, think about the things that for you, Define you as a Stoke fan. Well, you know, I'm I'm an old enough to remember going to the Potteries, but you've you've got you've got the, the new stadium, which which I, I try not to call the Britannia. Um, it's it now <laughs> best do, three six five stadium. Um, but you've got you got you got a really good stadium. And what what else do you hold? Well, it, it's red and white stripes, isn't it? Yeah, you know, that mm-hmm. those are your colours, and you've got your badge, and uh, you you play in Stoke. So if we want to protect a football club, what we don't want is somebody to buy the club from the Coates family. And I know that there's no chance and say, actually we want to relocate 40 miles away. So you know, under present rules, you can do that. That's, that's what happened with Wimbledon. It, that effectively, the, the name of the club was bought. It was treated as a franchise. And, and, and the, the benefit of being Wimbledon was effectively shifted to Milton Keynes. So... There's there's that there's the the, the club crest the home coloured sh- kit at Cardiff uh, the Cardiff exactly yeah a, p- a perfect example of, of when somebody comes in and just decides to to do something because his wife thinks it's lucky um, which which is crazy crazy so it, it's to protect fans. Um, through through having a veto over things like this. Um to encourage clubs to have a dialogue with fans. What it wants to ensure is that we have some form of safety net. Um, you know, I, 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 I describe the, the role of the regulator. It's it's a bit like having airbags in your car. You don't actually you don't ideally you don't notice them. Um, ideally you don't have to refer to them very often but if things do start to go wrong you're, you're you're damn glad that they're there and you know that that's the regulator a light touch regulator which can look into clubs finances on a day. you could effectively you know just just like you know you and i can we can find out our bank balance by looking at an app well if if you can do exactly the same um as that, if you are the regulator, you can look into individual club finances. You can check to see that they paid the wages. You can check to see that they paid HMRC for the tax, and you can do that immediately um, on on a monthly basis. That will be the type of thing that I'd expect the regulator to do. And then for you know for probably for for, for 91 out of 92 clubs every month, they don't have to do anything. There's a, and there'll be, one, be you know one club, perhaps two clubs. So you phone them and say, oh, uh, "You're a bit late with your tax payment." this week uh, and any issues that we ought to know about and the club he was oh yeah yeah we him, yeah, it was you know, it, it was a bit delayed it's, it's now being paid and you just go okay you know you sort of don't do anything but just just sort of perhaps move it from green to amber in, in your traffic light of worries and, and, and that goes no further but I, I don't think the regulator should be getting involved in, in things which Ultimately a football owner's decisions to make in terms of the the 3 pm blackout and, and there are there, there are benefits and drawbacks to that to that 3 pm blackout because if we start doing it in the EFL and all of a sudden you know Stoke do well out of it and Sunderland do well out of it and Borough do well out of it and those clubs are going, Well that's absolutely fantastic. And then you look down a couple of divisions and you've got, you know, the people at Rochdale and Morecambe and Accrington saying, Well, our crowds are down fifteen percent. So we're we're losing out on the back of this and the clubs in the championship well say we'll stuff you. Well, the next thing that's going to happen is that the Premier League will say, Well, well i think we'll we'll abolish the 3pm blackout as well and now you know, we we've, we've got chelsea versus spurs at 3pm on uh, a, a, on a on a saturday and it's part of your sky package or you pay you pay a 10 or 12 quid to watch it how are you going to attract walk up fans to the, to the to the 365 stadium because the season ticket holders will probably go regardless but you're still tr- trying to sell tickets for individual matches. And I, I don't know what your, your prices are, what are they what 25, 30 quid a match. Um, so, you know, you, you might have to, you know, you might have to catch a bus, you might have to get a train. Um, you, you're going, if, if, if it's, you know, it's a family, you, it's it's the thick end of a ton to, to get the family there, especially by the time you've had a bit of you know food and drink and so on. Or, you can sit at home, you can watch Chelsea versus Spurs, you can order a Domino's, um, and, and it's cost you 30 quid, and you're all dry, and if the kids get bored, they, they can sod off and go and play on the PlayStation. Which of, those, which of those two is more attractive? We estimate that 10 to 15% of people are now pirating. So you know, a, a good audience, for, if, if Sky have got a good match on a saturday on a a sunday afternoon they're probably looking at three million people watching so they're probably talking somewhere three to four hundred thousands are pirating it in this country and then piracy uh varies from country to country elsewhere depending upon the the degree of priority that the government has you know some countries they simply couldn't care less um, and that makes it more difficult for the Premier League to to sell the rights. And, and I've got I've got mixed feelings about that. You know, that the, the no, no nobody's going to feel sorry for Premier League owners in in all of this. Um, but in in the EFL, yeah, you know, if, if if the EFL get the pricing wrong, and I, and I felt that at ten pounds a match for I follow, the pricing was actually quite good. Um, the danger is is that if if you do start to lose the walk up fans um, you might also lose their their loyalty to an individual club because they've now got a choice of of 20 or 30 matches you you, you didn't have streaming services you didn't have an xbox you didn't have fortnite um and, you know, we, we do have a generation of, of kids coming through who have been impacted by COVID as well. You know, they've lost they've lost two years of their education and therefore they've, they've lost two years of of not talking about Stoke City on a Monday morning at school. Which yeah, which which is again. I think when I when I started supporting Brighton, it, it was it was the one thing that you spoke about on a Monday morning. And if you weren't a football fan, I wouldn't say you were ostracised, but you were you were a little bit on the outside. So therefore, being a football fan was a useful thing to be. Um, and and there is a danger that. If you're not going to matches, and also if you're not, you know, I, I can remember going matches. Uh, my, my old man wasn't a football fan, but one of the neighbours was, and his kid was. And you you went as a group and, and you had that chat. If, if you're watching the match or half watching the match now because you've got other screens with other diversions, that addiction, because. Why, why do we fall in? We fall in love with Stoke and Brighton because it's our local teams. But I think the other major issue is that you fell in love with the football experience, mm-hmm. seeing floodlights for the first time, seeing the grass, see, hearing the noise and the horses. Yeah, you know, we you know, the police horses and the crowds and sort of the 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 energy and the adrenaline that comes from a live football match is an inspiring event and, and that's part of the reason why we regardless of our age regardless of how crap it is on the pitch that's why we keep coming back and, and i I've, I've said this you know, I, I i love my wife and i love my kids but if i was to list the top 10 moments of my life six of them would involve brian no Albion. yeah and uh, yeah oh uh, yeah yeah birth of the kids and getting married are up, are up there make make sure you slip that in just just in case um but that's how put that's how important but none of those were watching watching brighton on the telly every single one of those was physically being there you know going forward about 20 yards in half a second as you tumble down the tumble between the stairs or go sliding down the terraces or whatever it was at the time And, and it it wasn't necessarily glamorous matches. You know, one of them was against Doncaster. One of them was against Hereford. And, and one of them was a, a way to bury. But they were still those moments. And, and it was all a case of being there. And as you rightly say, it's not the same on the telly.
0: Picture the scene. All of your mates around. You've got your McNugget share boxes ready to go. Partner this with your team playing champagne football. Perfect. Order mug delivery now on the McDonald's app.
1: That's why we're here to equip you with the right tools so you can reach out to those who can help. If your mates are struggling, let them know that the Samaritans are free to call on 16-123. 116 That's 116123. They are there to listen without judgment or pressure. 24-7, 365 days of the year. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football.
2: Oh, thank you to Kieran Maguire there, the font of knowledge that he is, for popping back onto this podcast and uh, you know, filling the, the gaps in for us. Uh, Moving on now, uh, we actually, this is the emergency podcast that we did. We didn't even know we were going to do it until the day when Michael O'Neill left the club. This was our reaction.
11: The reason why I think it's a a sad day is because you think of our last certainly three managers. um, They provided us with no real tangible positive at Mm -hmm. all. I like they they promised us a lot and they gave nothing. Lambert promised survival, uh, Rowett promised promotion, and Nathan Jones promised a team to be proud of, and we got neither. Um, O'Neill promised to keep us up. He promised to, you know, give us a y- more youthful, hungry team, and we got both, didn't we? Um, yeah. But he just didn't get the best out of it in the end. He didn't get the best out of his own machine, which seems a little bit. A bit backwards, isn't
5: it? You know, there's a week left in the window. There's seemingly no more money to spend. I mean, anyone coming in has to do it with what he has. Um, so for me, I think, it, the, the, it's, I think it's more of a timing thing. The timing is strange. Either you, if you back him like the owners of back team with, you know, eight players, um, you do so. And I think you then nail your colors to a mast almost to say, right, you get to Christmas. Let's see what you can do. Or you do what a lot of people are asking for and that's to replace him before the season even begins and before he even signs players.
11: What's his target? His target is to get us back to the Premier League. So no matter how we do it, we'll knife and fork it if we have to, we'll get back to the Premier League. What's our best asset as a club? For me, it's the players that we brought through the academy. Definitely. If he doesn't bring in a manager that can't use our best asset to get what we want we've absolutely fallen flat on our face so we need to get a manager whether he believes that's style or not whether he believes that's with four four two or three five two or 4 one 2 nathan jones's diamond who cares it doesn't matter this this manager needs to come in he's got to use our best young players alongside people like baker brown Sousa, who who've got a bit more experience behind them. Maybe Laurent when he's fit. But he's got the he's got to get the best out of Tyrese Campbell and Josh Tyman. And, you know, even like Demarge Wright Phillips, Liam DeLap, these young players, Connor Taylor, who I think that my my, my biggest bugbear with O'Neill was that he didn't get the best out of these young players. He worked so hard to get them through, and they reached the first team and they showed so show much promise, but they didn't have the effects on the team that we needed to win football matches. Time recently, but I mean,
5: let's think about what he still did achieve while he's been here. And some of this I mentioned, you know, again, he's brought he's gave the likes of Collins and Suter and as I said reinvented Time, and you know, he's he's done a lot for our young players he's cleared the decks like you've just said ben he saved us let's be honest from almost certain relegation i think was it only one team or something i think survived with the record that we had when he came in uh I might be slightly but i think like there or thereabouts wasn't it so the guys actually achieved a decent amount in that time i think obviously results at the end of the day is what it's all what it all boils down to what what are you looking for regardless of who comes in What are you looking for out of the next man? My personal opinion on this, I just want someone who's, we used a word earlier, I want to see someone who's charismatic, who does really well in interviews, tries to get people off the seats, plays decent football. I don't expect us to win every single week. I don't expect us to be challenging for automatic promotion. We are right now a mid-table club and nothing more. We need to understand that. We've now got to build ourselves back up. So for me, just somebody who can bring some exciting football back to the club. that That's really where I am. And hopefully the rest will come. Uh, Andy, what's your what's your main things, mate?
12: I want to see someone who plays positive football, mainly. Um, Michael O'Neill's started positive when he played 4-3-3, and then it just went extremely flat. We go one up and... You just knew something could happen, something could change massively. Um, I'm going to mention a game last season that none of us really want to talk about again when we were three up to Cardiff, and you know, in the space of five minutes, it's gone three three. I, I don't want to see things like that happening, but I mainly want a manager who's open with the fans. Michael O'Neill, yes, he was open, but a lot of things that he said in his interviews just seem to be like a broken record on repeat. And I want someone who's openly honest about what he says. If he doesn't think we were good enough in the game, if we do lose, he meant, he says that we weren't good enough. Um, I remember Michael O'Neill's interview after the Huddersfield game. He made a valid point of saying, you know, oh, we were the better team, but Huddersfield took the chances and key moments. The key moment should be the whole game really. And, I, like i've said i just want someone who the same as you mike is charismatic shows he's got passion and shows that he'd do anything for the club to win
5: yeah well said man hopefully he doesn't stop banging his chest
12: after <laughs> two weeks we're not breaking <laughs> jones back no no I
5: I you what, say, he, he cool. might be in trouble this year. sorry dan Guam.
2: i was going to say a couple of things about that though Sometimes, yeah, what a manager says in public and what he says in the dressing room can be two different things as well. And the other thing I'd say is, is by coming out and not sort of slating the performance, especially if these performances were going like three, four games in a row, by not coming out and saying, yeah, we were awful again. I don't know what they're doing. They're not doing what I'm asking them to do. I'm as frustrated as you lot in the stands. I don't know what's up with them. Because he you know, a manager not done that because they decided so young? Is
12: that why no, Michael O'Neill maybe I'm, didn't call them out so often? Because- I'm not saying for him to do that. I'm just saying, you know, if he thinks we've played poor, mention that we've played poor. Yeah. Don't don't okay. name names. Just say, Oh, but I know where I can improve on this. Michael O'Neill would just say, Oh, you know, we didn't have the best game. And he, he didn't really say where he was gonna go from there. He yeah, yeah. left it as that and you had no idea how we were going to play the next game and most of the times when he said that we had a bad game he goes out with the same formation, the same players if not only one change in the same formation and you were just like it's going to happen again and well, it turned out to start doing that didn't it yeah
5: fair enough and um, Ben what do you want out of the next man coming in mate
11: there's two things off the top of my head <laughs> first being i think i've already said someone who will who's a great coach and will get the best out of what i think really is a strong group of players i think there's a lot of potential that's not been tapped into dwight gale's not scored a goal yet for goodness sake (laughs) they've all been rolled out (laughs) wrong you can say what you want but he's not scored a goal I think we could and should be particularly with taking chances and changing the mentality when we concede because that's been terrible. We we never seem to gain points from losing positions and we always seem to lose them from winning positions. You know, a, a great coach, because I think that was Michael O'Neill's biggest weakness. I'm not saying he was a terrible coach by any means, but I'm just saying I think that was his weak point. So I want a, a really astute footballing coach doesn't need to necessarily be a manager help bring a technical director in as well if you want to you know someone to do O'Neill's other job which seems to be like all the off the pitch stuff to build us up and transfers and whatever the other thing I'd really like and it's sort of building off Andy's point a little bit they don't necessarily want somebody passionate you know because Nathan Jones is passionate but you know nobody really he, he had the right idea you could see that but he didn't really uh, he, he said a lot of words without actually putting a lot of meaning to them sometimes um, I want someone really articulate I want someone who when Michael O'Neill said I want the fans to be patient lovely Michael What like what is it do you want us to be patient with in particular do you want us to be patient because you know we've got a sentiment midfielder and a winger playing at wing back and it's going to take four or five games for them to bed in and yeah like we might not be as effective on the wings for the next few games but just bear with us while we try um, you know if someone had articulated that fans might have had a little bit more patience being patient in saying like don't 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 worry guys wins will come eventually it's no good to us. It's empty words. Once again, I, I want someone who, you know, they don't have to be passionate. They don't have to be jumping up and down on the touchline. You know, they don't have to be entirely transparent. You know, obviously transparency is important and getting that balance is right. Dan's right. What you say to the press is very different to what you say to your squad in the dressing room. Um, but someone articulate who can, you know, I th- Someone who can we can trust, we can actually believe in rather than just hope we're actually gonna do something.
5: Fair enough. Dan.
2: Uh, what then, what what am I looking for in the manager?
5: Yeah. Yeah. What what are the fundamentals you're looking for? Regardless of Doesn't matter who, matter comes, who in. comes
2: in. Uh I've, so somebody who's somebody who brings a good physio team with him.
12: He brings bubble the Nick Powell socks. Um
2: on a serious note I'd say yeah, I think somebody who's likes develop young players I think is the key one for me because I think we've got a lot of potential in the squad and I think Ben was alluding to it earlier a lot of it's potentially going stagnant now it's in the team and not sort of developing at the rate that we were hoping but they're but there's still very young yeah, and and still a lot of them are still young enough to, to pick that back up again and still hit the heights that they were, you know, I'm thinking people like Bursick, Campbell, um, as much as like Brown and Tymon have you know, have exceeded any expectation we had for them in the past 18 months. I think, there, like I say, there are others that have just plateaued a bit. And I think if we can get somebody who knows how to get the best out of young players, knows how to develop them, get them confident, um, is willing to play them and play them in the right positions... And that I think is a uh, key for me. Yep, yeah, the emergency pod there, we say it was a shock to me anyway that he uh, departed when he did. Uh, moving on now into a podcast that we did, that we tried hard for a long time to get and um, A busy man that he is, Gary Meller of Beswick Sports, finally managed to nail Gary down for a bit. And uh, this is the podcast that we did with him.
13: Obviously, uh, went to work at a local law firm, Basvick's, that um, was lucky enough to represent some of the, um, the the local football players. Like they looked after Stanley Matthews, and um Park looked after uh, Danny Smith. You know, you know another. And I suppose that I I had a, a love for sport. Uh, I was lucky enough to play local football, local cricket. Know quite a few people. Grew up in an era when a lot of players from this city. Major to the professional game, like your Adrian Heaths, your Lee Chapmans, Mark Chamberlain, Mark Bright, Mark, Ch- you know, the, the, the list just goes on and on, really. So I think that's, there were good times, and also people that played in the local cricket leagues North South and South Cheshire Cricket League, like uh, Alan Richardson and Dean Hadley and Dominic Cork, who went on to play South for cricket. We, we had a, a rich vein of local talent um, that I was lucky enough to, to be around. And it gives you a passion for the game, yeah. And uh, through what Bedricks were doing, I did, uh, I, I, I um, got involved with some bits of sports law. And uh, and then over 20 odd years ago, I was asked to help a, uh, a footballer get out of a contract with his agent because <laughs> he felt like it was <laughs> up. And I ended up doing his deal to Nottingham Forest, and it was the first deal I did. And, um, and then I'd like to say it was. It was by design but it was more of an accident got involved in the agency world and then 20 years ago we started bedrock sports so we have the law firm and the sports management company and a lot of work we do is consulting football clubs and and helping players and we've done will goodwin from stoke to Cheltenham town today which we're proud of ended up knowing his dad and playing with his dad and uh, so it's uh, it's 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 nice to see people that i've grown up with sons making a success or hopefully a success out of, their, out of their career again the american situation came about by phil rawlings as a friend of mine There was a director at stoke when he sold his business put some money into the academy um he started a team in austin texas i took a good friend of mine agent Heath cross uh, from stoke who um to manage the Austin team. Then we moved the team to Orlando, a very un-English thing to do. Uh, we arrived at Orlando to MLS. We opened up to 62,500 people. And having worked on that, I think since 2005, I uh, got to learn a lot about the American market. So we've taken, as I've mentioned before, people like James O'Connor, Anthony Pulis, Louis Neal, lots of people that will be well-known to Stoke fans across there. Marty Patterson went pl- played and has coached to, to, into Miami where Ryan Shawcross also ended up, and then you know they they the majority of them really enjoyed the time there, and it gives them an opportunity at the end of their careers probably to get into the coaching ranks a little bit quicker, um, and then as a result of getting to know and being on the board of Orlando City and, and, a, and an owner for a period of time, you know I've seen a bit differently by the MLS ownerships and groups. So we've done players like Louis Morgan from Celtic to into Miami now at New York Red Bull. Who's been a, a, a revelation? Jack Price, Wolves to, Wolves to Colorado, where he's been MVP and the last number of years broke Beckham's assist record. Uh, <laughs> and Tom Wokes, Tottenham Hotspur to Atlanta and then Charlotte. So we've done, done quite a few deals. Of course, we've done the, the odd one across here, like Jeff Cameron. <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, we you know we got Jeff across. I think two and a half million dollars. He played 165 Premier League games. That's unbelievable value. And then uh, players like Tim Ream, we brought over to Bolton, now playing for Fulham. So you know, we've um, we've it's been good to us. But it was it's uh, it's not a market that uh, it's not as straightforward as other markets in world football with the cap and designated players and target allocation money. There's a lot to learn, and we you know we did a lot of due diligence to be where. place we are right now. We helped Jack Harrison move to Manchester City and to Leeds um, tried to bring him to Stoke because he's <laughs> born in Stoke. I think he'd have been a great player for us if we'd have gotten here the January of our relegation season. That could have been the difference between staying up or going down. But unfortunately, Manchester City uh, gazumped us. Like, uh, John coaches is really incredibly to grab me hard and, you know, to keep Stoke on the right side of that. They've done it, you know buying the stadium, doing other things that, um, and we're very fortunate. It's not that the owners don't want to spend; it's just not, they're not allowed to. And I think we've all been in a much much better, stronger position this summer. Fingers crossed. Recommended very very few players to Soak City. I mean, I think um, Jack Buckland was an easy one because of the number of, you know, we we were up against Chelsea, Southampton. But it, it, I could convince Jack that the, you know, the club is in a good place and. Asmina as was ambitious and probably wanted to move to a club like he eventually did, Chelsea. Uh, Chelsea had a bit accepted from Birmingham City, but Jack chose Stoke City because we thought it was the quickest route to get him to play in Premier League football. Because I've done goalkeepers to Chelsea before who'd never made a first-team appearance. And then, you know, but then at the same time, I have to be quite tough with Tony's goals and have clauses in series that I could keep on taking him out on loan so he could grow. So, you know, obviously we went to Barnes, we went to Derby County, we went to a lot of different clubs that um, meant that Jack was in a place where, you know, he could play for Stoke, and was ready to play for Stoke. But then, obviously, you know, we had that unfortunate injury playing for England and and then it, it took some time to get right and some will say he's never been the same goalkeeper, but, you know, I think, you know, we were very fortunate to have the best young goalkeeper in the country at the time for a number of years and I'm very proud of that. It's got tougher. When I first did it, I don't know, I had a guess probably 20 to 30 agents in the country. There's now over 5,000. It's ridiculous. And um, and unfortunately, a lot of those don't have the right connections or can't get people to pick up the phone. And I suppose that's why Will Goodwin's father reached out to us because we felt we we had connections, could deliver something for him quickly. So he came to us in December and in January, he's jumped two divisions to League One. Well, they have to sign a representation agreement with the agent and that carries a maximum of two years. So every two years you have to have the conversation to see if they want to stay with you. It's quite a ruthless market. Um, and there are lots of people with a lot more cash than we've got and, and much bigger operations. What we what we say is you're not a number. You know, we, we treat everybody has their own business plan. We had players like Sean Logstaff at Newcastle. We had right through... To his first team debut, his first loans to Blackpool and up to up to Scotland and you know to to where he's had top four teams bidding for him. And then, you know, unfortunately, bigger agencies come along with that look and, and they get starry-eyed, but he's still at Newcastle. And then obviously we lost Jack Buckland after Stoke got relegated, which is personally disappointed about. But um, and then we had Phil Billing, who's at Bournemouth, another one. Lost him. So, yes, you know, you're always at risk every two years. He used to players like Wade Elliott, Michael Duff, you know, Varty Patterson, and then, you know, Jay Rodriguez. I mean, you know, you, you go every two years, he signs a contract because they've, you've earned their trust. We'd like to think that we help build careers like Sean Longstaff's and Jack Butland's by making the right decisions. And um, we want to continue to do that for people like Connor Taylor. You know, um, I'd be lying if I said I wouldn't prefer Connor to be out on loan right now, playing regular football. But Stoke have his contract, so therefore, he's a, he's in the club and he's he got so many chances today. But you want them to continue to play and develop. And um, I think Connor, for the first probably the first six seven games of this season, you know, I was I was pleased he'd stayed because he he did incredibly incredibly well until he picked up a bit of an injury. And um, I'm hoping to see him back on the side again before the end of the season. You know, we sent Tom Edwards to um, to Joey Barton at Fleetwood because Clint Hill had done good work with, um, with Harry Souter. And then, you know, we also sent Conor then to Bristol Rovers under Joey Barton. and Clint was there, and, you know, you at the start. And, you know, I think that Conor went to Bristol Rovers as one player and came back another you know, I watched the game at Port Vale, where Port Vale were the form team, and Bristol Rovers are coming from way behind. But I thought Connor was magnificent that day. You know, he uh, got a booking in the second minute. I remember speaking to after the game and saying, "I thought you would managed your game really well, having got a booking so early on in such a big game." And he said, I, "And I thought at the time, what a great learning experience." So he shows that he he understands he has to keep learning. But you you don't you don't learn by not playing. You, you know, I, I used the, the um, I use the phrase quite often, go and make your mistakes somewhere else and then come back and, and performs for Stoke. I mean, that's probably a bit unfair, the clubs that take them, but that has happens sometimes. I recommended Harry Suter to Owen Coyle at Ross County. He, though he wasn't my player, he scored her own goal not far long after coming on for his debut. But I knew Owen Cole was good for young players because seeing what he'd done with people like Jerry Rodriguez and Chris McCann and Martin Patterson, you know, he's, he's very much a certain managers you'd pick to be good with young players, remember, you know, we we've we've, we've had, we had Harry Toffolo at Norwich, came through that youth cup winning team, and then did really well, and you know, and but I felt that the Norwich City loans, the first couple, were to the wrong types of managers, and I won't mention one of them because he's coming to town pretty soon, but uh, you know, it's uh, certain Harry Toffolo as a left wing back isn't going to get better playing for a team that play long. We are reaping the benefits of some really good recruitment during a period where there was a lot of criticism in recruitment with the suitors, the Tynans, you know, the Nathan Collins, the Harry suitors. They were all bought at a time when probably the Recruitment Department were getting their most stick, but they had a long-term plan and got the right people in place in the academy to develop them, and they believed in that. And, and I think that's always been... I think Peter and John Coates have always wanted the Academy to produce players. We'd all love to go back to the days I grew up in, in the seventies when the team was full of local lads like Jenny Smith and Mickey Pedgick and you know, Alan Blue. But unfortunately you do have to catch your net a little bit further afield. I don't think they have to go to Australia to get Harry Suter, but you do know, you know, it's a, <laughs> it's it's one of those where the reality is you've got a you've got a You've got to go out and look, and then you find the, lo- the best young local players who they can they can play with, and hopefully will you know develop more talent that that produces on the pitch for Stoke. Stoke have gone and taken players, you know, like we took you know, Joe Bursick from in you know, the England 21 goalkeeper. We take players, but uh, I think you know, Tyrese Campbell picked up from Man City, who you know before his injury was could have been anything really, and hopefully he'll, he'll return to that form and still shows that he's capable of anything on, on his when he's on form. I know he's probably getting a bit of a stick off the fans at the moment and, you know, he's not he's not my player. But I, you know, there's days when it looks like he could be a world beater and, you know, that period he had before he got injured, we seem to have had some really bad luck with our best young players like Tyrese when they're in fantastic form, Harry Souter. And even Josh Tynan, I mean, I think Josh Tynan was was incredible before he got his injury. You know and hopefully he's going to come back to that, that form again. I remember gifted all my Williams when I was moving to Burnley, couldn't go because uh, his wife was working and so I had to pick the kids up from school. So to make the deal happen, I drove to Stone to pick his kids up from school. I don't you know, I can't believe the school let me have them to be honest. But uh, I mean, we all know Gibson's got a lot of kids, so they're probably pleased to give them to me, but they uh... <laughs> didn't need me any bus, not quite. But I, I remember having. Three days driving, I think I did Adiak in by somewhere. I did Dealey de and Ebola, I think, from Coventry to Bristol City, and a Gifton Old Williams to Burley, all in a short space of time. And that's two or three of the biggest blokes you'd ever have in your car, you know, <laughs> <not> distinctly <laughs> so tiny on the days. Yeah, Gifton, no, well, I'm going to move here, I've got to go, someone's going to get me kids. I said, Look, I've done the contract, I'll get them. I think we all know as well, I, with the central covered it quite extensively when I went off to. Um, to uh, Ukraine when the Russians had invaded Crimea to try and get Yamalenko to come over to Stoke. Um, and the plane was empty. That was probably... My wife would say that's the daftest thing I've ever done. Probably not the strangest. Wow. I mean, that was...
2: I mean, that, that deal seemed to sort of drag on for a, a while, didn't it, as well? Like, was a few... Did you have a few goes at trying to bring him over?
13: Yeah, we did, yeah. I mean, we, you know, I went, I went on a couple of occasions and he was a really, really good guy, Andre. I, mean, I think when he came to West Ham... I think it was probably a little bit, you know, the, the move to Bruce Yadolton was the one that we'd have had. I think he would have been some player for us. I didn't think I'd ever see a team again, like I saw when I was at school in, in the city of, you know, Jimmy Green off Alan Hudson, et cetera. And then that team with of Bojan, you know, Johnny Walters, you know, I've just, I've talked to Johnny Walters a lot now about, um, you know, his new role and advised him a little bit around his move to take the job at Fleetwood. And, you know, he works just as hard off the pitch as he did on the pitch. And, you know, when you've got players like Arnie and Bojan and maybe, you know, sort of um, Shakiri, you do need some others and that, that they give you that mix, like the Glenn Whelan's, the, the Johnny Walters, the Ryan Shawcrosses, the Robert Toothson. What a team. The Andy Wilkinsons, obviously. You know, I mean, and I'm, I'm, I'm so pleased I got to see... Um, Two, what I think, were fantastic teams, and I do believe things coming through. So, I've got hope in my heart for the future of the football club. You know, Andy Wilkinson playing all those Premier League games when we came through because we nearly moved on at least three occasions. I remember we were very close of going to Blackpool, and ironically, it was the game I think it was against Manchester United, Cristiano Ronaldo. When Wilco got sent off, but he marked him out of the game, really. But he uh, <laughs> and he, was, he clapped the fans because they were all giving a standing ovation as he got sent off. And Tony Poole going to be the biggest rollicking for saying, Tell Wilco not to clap the fans when he's been sent off. He comes, to put us down to 10 men. But I think that day he turned Tony around and he pulled the Blackpool deal. And then, you know, I remember Ben Foster. It was, um, you know, I had Ben Foster as a young player, really good guy, third choice goalkeeper. Uh, got on loan got him on loan to Kidderminster him into areas. had a disaster I think they lost 4-1 he was responsible for every single goal got sent back that could have been the end of his career but I drove to see ironically Danny Smith and Kevin Russell at Wrexham and convinced them to watch him uh, and Denny said well he's still living in Stoke at the time he said I'll, I'll, if, there are two, if he plays on Monday afternoon at Newcastle Town at 2 o'clock at the reserve game I'll come and watch him probably just to get rid of me Got back, spoke to John Rudge. He said, No, Tony's as a rule. Whoever doesn't play out in Simmons and Ed Dehoy gets to play in the home games. So I had to go above Rudge's head a little bit and ring Tony Pulis and say, Look, I've got Danny Smith coming to watch better. I can get him out alone, alone again. I think he's a really good keeper. I don't think Kidderminster is the way you want to leave it on his CV, else he might not have a career. They took him. And the rest is history. He played in the all-class final. Obviously, Alex Ferguson watched his son. He got a move to United and had a fantastic career. And that's a bit of the job people don't see. Most of the time, we're begging people to take players or trying to keep them and make sure they've got a career. And there's some local players I've seen that go out of the game because they didn't get the right loan moves. I don't think people worked hard enough for them, and yet they could have had good careers. I mean, you know, but um, we got Jack Butland from Birmingham to Cheltenham because I knew... The, uh, the manager had been the assistant manager at Burnley when I had all the players at Burnley originally. And, um, you know, I remember going to watch him play on a Friday night at Burton Albion and realising we got something special in our hands because every single Premier League was there. And I think Liverpool had four people there and Chelsea had people there. It was, it was just crazy. And they all wanted to sit next to me. That's not That doesn't normally happen. And, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's one, you need to know that they've got your best interests at heart. And two, you, you want to make sure they've got a plan for you. I think, um, I honestly believe that uh, deadlines are the worst signs that take place happen on deadline day. I think, Well, I think a lot of clubs panic. I think, um, you know, I, I, I'd go back to the old system where you've got to tell us something like the third Thursday in March to do a deal or something because sometimes, you know, a deal might... Um, might save a football club from going into meltdown. Uh, they might need to sell a player. You know, I, I probably prefer would have preferred that we didn't uh, sell Paul Pesca Salido just before we got in the playoffs <laughs> against Leicester City that season, but, you know, in March. But I think, you know, I think some football clubs like it because you'll see these these summers where players are trying to get out and the, the, the managers can't wait for the window to end. But I'm... I'd like to see the transfer window eliminated for EFL teams because I think that would, would help sometimes. I don't know Alex Neil really well, but I do know he's had three promotions and I do know I see him a lot of football games. And I, and I, I like that. I like people who go to a lot of games and watch, watch games because when it comes to making decisions, not only have they got the scouts out watching, they've watched them themselves and they know, they know, you know whether or not they'll be their type of player.
2: A great insight there into the life and times of an agent and and that podcast actually has had more listens than any other one we did so it sounds like it went far and wide and it caught the imagination of a few. Uh, Another one that's been quite popular is the life and times of a modern day footballer when we sat down with Ben Wilmot recently.
14: I'm going to have to go in over the summer a bit um, to continue with the rehab work and stuff. But fortunately, it wasn't as um, bad as first feared, so I should be back in time for pre-season, which is the main thing.
2: Oh, but I mean, so did, did you know then, obviously when, when it did happen, uh, obviously you, you, you looked in the incredible amount of pain at the time, did you know straight away that there was something serious that was gone or...? Uh,
14: yeah, I mean, I... Knew when I tried to stand up when I was on the pitch that something was bad because it was like the worst pain I've ever felt in my life, um, and like I can't even describe it. It was it was so bad. Um, but then once I had the scans, I had the original X-ray, and they said that it was all fine. Um, but then I went on to have a CT scan as well, and that's where it showed up that there was a little fracture in there. Um, so obviously, when you hear the word fracture, you immediately think it's going to be like a hefty length of time. But luckily, because it was just a small one, um, the time frame was about six to eight weeks, which um, left me a good amount of time to recover in time for preseason. So yeah, it wasn't wasn't as bad as what I might have thought at, at first. Yeah, yeah, it would definitely be my dad because he um, he used to play and I would go along and watch and then the older I got um, he used to be a goalkeeper so I used to help out with his warm-ups and stuff when I was a bit older and a bit more capable um, so yeah I grew up um, watching him really and just wanted to to do the same thing so yeah he's definitely where I got the love of f- football from
2: uh, so um, as, as you sort of, would you support the team that your dad was sort of playing for or that you- uh,
14: a little bit I mean I grew up as an um, Arsenal fan. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but now since really since I started playing professional football, I haven't really uh, bothered about any other team than the one I've been playing for. So it's um, a little bit weird because I don't really care for for anybody else now. Um, but that's obviously just like the life of a uh, professional, I guess. W- once you're in the environment, you want. You like your your team to succeed, so all other loyalties are out the window. Then it wasn't really my decision, to be honest. Um, they said to me that they that I wasn't really needed anymore, um, and that they didn't really they didn't really want me there anymore. So the decision to leave was taken out of my hands um, and sort of forced upon me, really. Uh, and then once we found that out, then it was a case of speaking to. Um, any clubs that sort of sued me and Stoke were by far the most keen to get me on board. Um, I had people come and visit me and show me presentations and stuff. And um, the project that was sold to me was one that I backed like, straight off the bat. So, um, yeah, it was an easy decision to to come here, really.
5: But,
2: so I mean, Michael O'Neill was the manager at the time. So was he sort of heavily involved in that process? Then,
14: yeah, yeah. Um, so I spoke to him on a number of occasions and a few others of his uh, sort of his members and staff. And um, yeah, it was. Just, I got a really good vibe from all of them. And like I said, the projects that they were talking about um, really suited me in the way that they wanted to play and everything. So yeah, it was a, it was a no brainer for me in the end. Yeah, definitely. I think. It's exciting for all of us to know that the club's in a position to have a go, if you like, next season. And that's sort of all you can ask for, is to be part of an ambitious club. Um, And I feel like that's going to be the case this window. So certainly for me, I'm feeling really positive uh, and ambitious for next season. And I think um, the owners and people higher up are as well with the like I said, the sounds of things that they are going to be putting um, some money into the into the summer window. So yes, yeah, it's, it's exciting because we'll get a lot of new players in, uh, and hopefully they can bring real quality and allow us to have a real good go next season. Yeah, I think it was it was exciting for me when he came in. Um, obviously, like you just said, with his pedigree and um, CV and stuff. And then I think that Brighton game, especially, I thought we both did really well and worked really well together. Um, And I really enjoyed playing with him. So I was looking forward to to more games like that. But unfortunately for him, obviously, the injury and stuff um, has kept him out for the rest of this season, which has been a shame. But yeah, I mean, I'd like to to play with him again at some point. I did enjoy it, but um, I've really enjoyed playing with Jags. for the majority of this season so uh, once Axel wasn't unavailable, uh, was not unavailable I didn't have any problems with um, playing alongside Jags Jags is um, a natural leader and he is the sort of the loudest man on the pitch um, when he plays uh, and I can certainly learn off of that And but he obviously requires information off of me so it um, makes me be more vocal anyway Um, but then I'll just obviously take that and then with whoever I'm playing and and try and do the same thing so I wouldn't I don't consciously uh, consciously try harder to be any more vocal than I would be if I was playing with Jags because I have to be vocal with playing with Jags even though he is the loudest man on the pitch you know so it's it's the same really it has to be have to be loud with whoever I'm playing with couple of months before um and i said to my parents i was like look i need need to get a haircut now because they were just frustrating the life out of me and then my dad said why don't you wait until you score and then have like a a reason to do it and it took me a lot longer to score than i was hoping (laughs) um (laughs) but once once i scored yeah i couldn't wait to get it off because yeah that that haircut was well overdue i think
5: one thing i would probably say ben um basically my son's quite new to Stoke and I, me and Dan took our our children to, to that game and the one thing to, hopefully gives you any credit of how much it means to, to players is I say my son's in his second or third game and he, we were right behind that goal yeah. um, and you know, he, he went he went nuts and that's what that goal alone has helped to cement his love of Stoke and wanting to go with me next season so I don't know if sometimes you feel as a player that the, the impact that you have but I just wanted to stress that like, my son's that has helped my son get into Stoke City those little moments so it was a special goal mate oh thank you
2: Through you and watched the ball
5: in the top corner <laughs> <laughs> um, it was in slow motion almost wasn't it I mean it, did you kind of know that, that was in as soon as it left your foot Ben or
14: um, as soon as it left my foot I knew I'd called it sweet um, but I didn't really think Anything of it, um, and then, yeah, I'd say as you know, sort of halfway, you can sort of see the line of the ball and where it's heading. And I thought, yeah, that's that's got a chance. Um, but as I've said to everybody, I didn't realise how far out I was until I watched the replay after the game, and. Yeah, I had no right to be shooting from there, to be honest. I think the stick I would have got if that didn't go in would have been crazy because it was way too far out to be shooting. But That's yeah, how
2: desperate you were for a
14: haircut. I know, yeah. <laughs> International football was always a dream of mine and still is. Um, I think the dream is to play for England, obviously being English. But if uh, if I ever got the call from Ireland, then I'd certainly be interested and and why not i think it's i'd be able to play on the international stage against some of the best players in the world so it would like be a a silly decision to not consider that i think
5: earliest football memory
14: um going to watch my dad there's a photo of me and my brother being mascots, my dad. When my dad used to play for St Albans, and it was freezing, and me and my brother just looked like we are absolutely frozen, but we're both tiny and in little kids. So yeah, <laughs> that's
5: lovely. Um, favorite game played in? Now this can be for any club.
14: Um, I will have to go with Coventry away this season. Just like I said earlier, it's that first half of football was probably the best I've ever played in
5: about a uh, pre-match ritual or superstition
14: um i got a few i put um left shin pad on first left sock on first left uh boot on first and then i've got a little bag of coins that um i've got i've never got six i got five off my mum and i got one off of my girlfriend and i lay them out in I see in the dressing room uh, before we go out in every game. <laughs> are the other ones like, oh wow, <laughs>
5: that, 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 that's amazing. I've never heard anything uh, along those lines before. So that that's really interesting. Where, just to mention, where, where did that kind of come from? Is that is that something that's just built up over time, or was there a, was there a, a moment in your career that that's just developed from that moment?
14: Um, no, yeah, it, did, it sort of built up. I mean, it started with. Um, when I was younger, um, I must have been, I don't know, 16, 17 maybe. My mum, um, I bought a new wallet and my mum gave me, um, it was when the new pound coins came out. And obviously, you meant to put a new coin in the new wallet or whatever. So my mum gave me a new pound coin. So that's one of the coins because I just kept hold of that. And then she got me these, um, She got me four more that were to do with, uh, they were meant to be like lucky coins. So they're to do with sort of like travel and um, things like this about
5: about
14: being protected and whatnot. And then, um, so I got those a few years ago and then obviously I showed my missus when we got together a few years back and then she got me one that's got sort of our names or our initials on and like a football and stuff. And so, yeah, so I've been sort of collecting them over time, I guess, uh, by accident, but now I've got six that get laid out without a fail before every
5: game. <laughs> that's brilliant. I love that. Um, go to cheat
6: meal. Uh, Indian.
5: Oh, nice. Uh, favourite TV show? Um,
14: I'm Not actually massive on TV. Uh, OK. I would say, to be fair, me and the Mrs Love Married at First Sight. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> really? I've never seen it. i
5: ne- never seen it. that. <laughs> I'll, give it, I'll give it a go for your recommendation. No problem. <laughs> um, on the flip side, favourite film? Um, the Notebook. Oh, yeah, yeah, good film. Uh, quite a very sad ending, to be honest, but um, mm. good luck trying to keep a dry eye on that one. <laughs> um, I was, we kind of might have half answered this. Do you miss your long hair? I think the answer is no, I think. No. <laughs> no.
14: It was fun while it lasted, but no.
5: Perfect. Uh, favorite holiday destination? Um... um...
14: I like, I really like going to new places and ex- sort of exploring different cultures and stuff, but I am frequently in Dubai as well as Turkey because my family and we've got a group of family friends who love Turkey and we go there pretty much every summer. So I'm
5: there a lot. <laughs> wow. Nice. Okay. No, but I think I think Ty said uh, uh, Dubai as well from a Burale. Um seems to be a, a very popular place. Um this is kind of not a quick fire, but are you are you a bit of a singer, Ben? Or... No. Well, no, not in public anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so what's your to- go-to karaoke song if it was just you and a microphone?
14: Um, well, if it was just me, I'd do anything. But for, for like, um, initiation songs and stuff, I've tended to... Oasis. Um, so, coming here, for example, I did um, Don't Look Back in Anger. Um, but at Watford, I did like another Oasis song and stuff like that. So, yeah, I tend to sway towards that.
5: Perfect. Um, best player that you've ever played with?
14: Um, probably Delafeu at Watford.
5: Nice. Uh, toughest striker that you've faced? Um
14: don't know if he counts as a striker but I had to play against Son um, when we played Spurs for Watford in the Carabao Cup and that was horrible just because he's so quick and left foot, right foot and yeah, not too fun
5: Yeah, real quality player I think Harry Kane brings the best out of him uh, certainly yeah. Um I think you get. You may have answered this one. In fact, you think you have your best performance for Stoke will be the Coventry one, I assume, or is it a different one? Um, is it me personally? Yeah, you personally your best performance. Um. Yeah, I think. I don't know. I think I did
14: okay that day. I think other people did better than I did. Um, <laughs> I really don't know. I, I enjoyed the Brighton game because it was a different test because of obviously the way that they played and the quality that they had. And I thought I did pretty well in that game. So maybe, yeah, maybe that one.
5: We were really unlucky. I think that was that that pressing performance was next level. That was that yeah. Was brilliant. Um, so the best atmosphere that you played in?
11: Um, I
14: would have to say... We uh, that Spurs game for Watford was in the Carabao Cup but we played it at MK Dons and it was sold out it was like 30,000 but um, yeah the noise was incredible and it was a really good game as well so it was yeah great atmosphere <laughs>
5: Hopefully, that will return here next season with a bit of luck. Um, Obviously, that's what we're hoping for. Uh, No, again, I think we know this one. Your favourite stone goal, I think it's pretty obvious.
14: Yeah, yeah, Preston.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, favourite to weight ground? Um,
9: That is a good one. Um,
14: I quite like... Quite like Cardiff, just the way it is, and change rooms are nice and stuff. But it's never really like the atmosphere is never really that good. Um, I think I really enjoyed Sunderland, um, and obviously the performance matched it. So yeah, maybe Sunderland.
2: I was thinking then, as an ex-Swansea player, he was naming Cardiff, and then he rescued it by saying, "Ah, oh, the atmosphere is
5: crap. It's all right." <laughs> <laughs> nicely done Uh, yeah so just a handful more so oh this is an interesting one you can have one striker at Stoke in their prime who would you choose Messi Haaland or Ronaldo
14: Uh, I'm Ronaldo because I'm a huge Ronaldo fanboy so
5: (laughs) (laughs) where's Ronaldo perfect and who's got the worst dress sense now just Tyrese gave Blondie as the worst dress sense if I remember rightly
14: (laughs) Okay, well, that's not too good for me because we turned up in the same trackie the other day, me and Blondie, so <laughs> that says something that. So, uh, um, I don't know. I think, I wouldn't say anybody's particularly bad. I think the only one you could probably question is Dujon's choice of footwear because he will come in in literally slippers sometimes. So I think that that has to be questioned.
5: I take it you give him some stick for that I assume.
14: Yeah, I think it's uh yeah, a lot of the lads well it doesn't go unseen anyway.
2: <laughs> Is there a fine system in place?
14: Um not for footwear like that, but maybe there should be.
2: <laughs> yeah, can put that in the recommendations box. <laughs> See
5: if you got one get one of them in. Things for next season. No slippers. <laughs> Um, first and last player to turn up for training
14: Um, first to be fair there's a group who get in at like a pretty similar time I reckon Frankie Fielding is probably the first in and then I'd say last where did you say last in or last out
5: uh, last out yeah last, or last, out. Or, or last player yeah or last player to turn up for training if you want I'll let you choose
14: uh, I won't wrap them out. So the last one to <laughs> leave training is probably Bakes 99% of the time.
5: Oh, perfect. Okay, well, interestingly, Ty said Bakes controls the pre-match music, if I remember rightly. So is that still the case, or has someone else taken over now?
14: Um, I think it's actually Ty. I think it's there's the huh? playlist that everybody's picked, like a few songs. Um And it's on. Ty, Ty's got it on his phone. I think Brownie's got it on their uh, his phone as well. And I think they do like rock paper scissors before a game, so to who has to put it on so that they don't have to like sacrifice
5: their phone. <laughs> right. And um, final two. um If you had one final three course meal, what would that consist of? Start, a main, and dessert.
14: Um, I actually had this discussion the other day. Um, <laughs> I would have probably chicken liver pate to start and then i would have a roast dinner um probably like three different meats like pork chicken and beef or something like that (laughs) and then i would have probably some sort of cheesecake like um i like uh like a mandarin cheesecake or something like that
5: Okay, nice. Okay, yeah, I think cheesecakes a, a, a favourite. Um, and a, a big, a big question. That, again, um, I'm interested in what you think about this. So, are you a FIFA or a Pro Evo guy? Definitely FIFA. <laughs> yeah, absolutely correct answer. Um, so, do you do you actually agree with your FIFA card? Because I looked at this the other day. I was doing some prep. I thought it was quite harsh. So, just as a bit of a, a reminder, pace is 55, shooting's 37. Passing to 53, dribbling to 60, defending to 71, so not bad, and then physical is 70. You've got an overall of 69 uh, last time I looked, I mean, that sounds a bit harsh to me.
6: Yeah,
14: me too. <laughs> I think some of the individual stats are a bit harsh, like uh, the pace and stuff. I don't really know how my pace can be that low, but my dribbling be higher than
5: my pace. <laughs> I mean, uh, passing of 53 is harsh, Ben. Yeah, that's a bit harsh as well. And shooting uh, of 37, you'd prove that one.
14: Yeah, I mean, you'd like to think maybe next year that they would, they would rank that up a little bit, but oh well, maybe I shouldn't be shooting at some
5: <laughs> <laughs> No, do it some more, please. Um, and then I say, Ty Tyrese actually thinks he's a bit of a baller at FIFA. I mean, do, do you play Tyrese and do you think you could beat him?
14: Uh, I've not played him, but probably not. If he's backing himself like that, i probably wouldn't be him. <laughs> I don't think I'm very good. I just play like for the fun of it.
5: <laughs> well, I think you definitely need, I mean, maybe that's something to do in the, the community trust or something, you know, you and Ty have a bit of a head to head, raise some money maybe, but uh, yeah. yeah.
2: Well, that's it. I don't know how I've managed to squeeze the last two years into two podcasts, even if this one is a bumper two-hour one. Uh, but, yeah, thank you for listening. Uh, thank you to all the guests we've had on on the podcast so far. Um, a massive thank you personally for me to Mike. Uh, it's been great working uh, with him over the last two years, and let's hope there's many, many more years to come. I know we've got some great plans for the pod moving forward. Uh, so, yeah, stick with us, listeners. We're going to try and keep you entertained, uh, but yes, and also yeah, thank you of course to your listeners. You've been fantastic. We've had some great feedback, and it makes it all worthwhile for us that you know we hear some great. Um, the I uh, want you look forward to listening to the pod and all that. If you could drop us a review, a five star review on uh, Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to it, that'd be amazing. Um, and also, obviously, if you haven't joined us, and we've got a Twitter page, we've got Facebook, Instagram. So if you get on any of that, if you're on any of the networks, get on and uh,
1: start following us and uh, don't miss out on anything. The Talk Sport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with Free for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. As football fans, we often pride ourselves on knowing everything, from which substitution can turn the game around to the quickest route home to beat the crowds. However, when it comes to discussing feelings with our friends, we might not always feel as confident. That's why we're here to equip you with the right tools so you can reach out to those who can help. If your mates are struggling, let them know that the Samaritans are free to call on 116 123. That's 116 123. They are there to listen without judgment or pressure. 24-7, 365 days of the year. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football.
0: Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's.